Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, and welcome to System Reboot, a podcast from Gizmodo where we dive into the systems that are failing us and explore realistic opportunities to create something better. I'm Brian Kahn, the managing editor at Earther. And I'm Alex Kranz, Senior Consumer Tech Editor at Gizmodo. And today, Brian, I'm very excited because we're going to talk about something near and dear to my heart and probably yours and every single person who's had to work from home or watch a movie from home or do anything from home that requires the internet. Why does the internet suck? Uh, Indeed, near and dear to my heart. Or maybe like near and dear to like the rage inside my body because (laughs) why does it suck? Screw you, internet. Like that question just fuels us, right? Like it gets us through our days. Yeah, I mean, truly, I dwell on this very often and I'm very, very, very hopeful that we'll get an answer to why it sucks and also what we can do better about it. Today, we're talking with Corey Doctorow, who's a special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and co-founder of the UK Open Rights Group. Yeah, Corey's also a journalist, a blogger, an activist. He's been writing science fiction for years. He's really like was almost not at the birth of the Internet. I don't want to age Corey like that. Um, Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. But no, he's he's really was at the forefront of the Internet from very early time. It's actually pretty amazing. Like, how did he do all this? It's very incredible. And it's, you know, he started at, uh, is it Boing Boing? Yeah, he started at Boing Boing. He's going to message us after this and say we're terrible people because we mispronounced Boing Boing. (laughs) So he started there and then he quickly started writing about science fiction. And he's such a passionate dude that he really started talking about all the other stuff, too. Like when you have that kind of passion, it leads from from, okay, I'm going to write about weird shit I find on the Internet to, oh, I'm going to write about fiction based on weird shit I found on the Internet to, oh, I'm going to write about why the Internet sucks. And he's just so, so smart about this subject, which I'm really excited for because I have a decent idea of why the internet sucks. One, we probably all need to go buy a new router and a new cable modem. That's very important. But also we are facing such a big uphill battle from companies, from our politicians. It seems like everybody is against us and keeping us from the internet that we all crave. Why does everyone want the internet to suck? You know, I, it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I don't get it. I, I feel like that's a, a question that Corey can probably answer better than I can because I just like to feel a lot of rage in my heart, as you said. <laughs> so we should probably get talking to Corey. He can he can explain it better than either of us. Let's have him explain it and hopefully channel our rage. Yes. Chris, do you want to? I feel like we we've been letting you open the tech one, so I want to. I'll give you the open. I get to open it? I'll give you the welcome, yeah. Okay, well, now we're here with Corey, who is going to talk about net neutrality and these pipes that may or may not be giving us all the data we crave. Yes, I'm happy to do that, uh, particularly as uh, I am perennially frustrated by the poor state of my own data, and that was even before it became the single wire that was delivering access to the entire plagued world, so... I'm I'm here for you. 
Oh, thank you. What's what's your biggest data frustration? I want to know. Oh, I'll tell you. So I live in Burbank, California, uh, but of many Johnny Carson jokes, a city of 100,000 people on the outskirts of Los Angeles, where we have the three major movie studios. I can walk to Disney, Warner, and Universal from my front door in under half an hour. Wow, lucky you. Yeah. And as befits a city where you have a lot of media, we raised a bond and built a fiber loop called Burbank One. That's a 100 gigabit fiber loop. But our deal with Charter Spectrum, our monopoly cable operator, prohibits the city from terminating it in any business that is not zone commercial. So even though I operate a business out of my home, pay taxes on that business, and have a piece of fiber running under my foundation slab, I'm paying 100 bucks a month for the jankiest, crappiest internet from a monopolist whose CEO was the fourth highest compensated CEO in America last year and whose linesmen and technicians who come into our homes were not given PPE. And instead, they were given, in lieu of hazard pay, vouchers to use at restaurants that had closed during the pandemic. Oh, God. Wow, I thought that Spectrum, which I have, was bad. But oh, this sounds- is Spectrum. No, that is Same Spectrum. Company. Same company. Oh, yeah, I was oh, about I to it. say... You mentioned Spectrum, and I was like, well, there's your problem. Oh, yeah. But you know what? It's not like Comcast customers are jumping for joy. And we, <laughs> what we really should do in this call is we should talk about Frontier, not because they're the worst in America, although they were. It's because they're the one that went bankrupt, and we got to see all their paperwork. So we know more about the operation of these firms, thanks to Frontier, than we would uh, if this conversation had been going on a couple of months ago. It would have all been conjecture, but now we have the receipts. So we can thank them for going bankrupt, for having insights into this horrible, horrible thing that's happening behind the scenes basically everywhere. And that bankruptcy is not unrelated to the horribleness. (laughs) Who filled in the gap when Frontier went away? Uh, Nobody. (laughs) So people just don't have internet. Well, no, they're like restructured in like chapter 11. So, you know, they have a skeleton crew running their thing. But they're, I mean, the thing about Frontier is that a lot of their connectivity, well, let me step back a bit. So America stopped enforcing antitrust law meaningfully 40 years ago. It's only gotten worse for the last 40 years. And among the elements of the mannered kabuki we engage in when firms do anti-competitive things like merging with major competitors is we put conditions on the mergers like, hey, you know, AT&T buying some other company's business, Verizon's business, you have to sell off some of your exclusive territory, which like, again, how is a pro-competitive law ever talking about exclusive territory. (laughs) Never. Yeah. And those snips, right, those dregs were the things that Frontier bought. And in their bankruptcy filing, one of the things that we see is they identified and booked as assets in their balance sheet one million households that had no choice, where they could make no infrastructure investments, where they could provide service at the highest prices and the lowest reliability and bandwidth that you could imagine and where people would just be stuck using it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like where most of my friends and family live who are all in rural Texas. Like, they get one guy, he's terrible, he gives them no help, and that's it. You have that, or you can, like, sit on your roof and use your phone. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. So one of the things about this debate is that there is a way out. So towns that have built their own fiber loops, like mine, are doing really, really well if they provide those fiber loops to their citizens. And it's not just like affluent suburbs of Los Angeles that get to do this. There's a county in Kentucky. Uh, I'm just looking up the name of this con- of this county. It's an Appalachian county, and it is the poorest majority white county in America, obviously. The racial dimension means that there are counties that are poorer. But they started a company called Kentucky Wired. 
And Kentucky Wired used some federal money and some bonds and some, some other sources of income to pull 100 gigabit fiber to every single address in the county. They got a mule called Old Bub to haul fiber through mountain passes that no motorized vehicle could get through. Wow. Mule-powered internet. <laughs> they raised the medium wage, median wage to $25 an hour. Those people are now your tech support. Yeah. And they're yeah. your customer service. And there is an entire region of China where affluent children are being taught to speak English in Appalachian accents by these people. So it has been absolutely transformative. And it's not limited to fancy places where I live. Everywhere in America could benefit from this. This could be the second wave of electrification. It could be an economic revolution and a human rights revolution because when you get your romance and education and everything else through your single wire, then who runs that wire and how it runs really matters. Yeah. Mm. And right now it's Spectrum. Well, it's Spectrum, it's Comcast, it's AT&T. I mean, one of the things about these companies is although there are many of them, they never compete head to head. Right. So they they carved up the country. Yeah. They, I, I always say it's like they, they have their little fiefdoms and like yeah. they, they stay clear of each other. Every once in a while, Verizon's like, oh, no, no, I'm going to come in with some with some Fios. But otherwise, it's it's each one to themselves. It's, yeah, it's like the Pope dividing up the new world, right? <laughs> you stay on this side, I'll stay on that side, and we will never try and raid each other's customers. And, you know, one of the things about highly concentrated industries is that they don't need to actively collude to still have activity that's indistinguishable from collusion. You know, when you've got five companies in a sector, everybody qualified to be in the C-suite of any of them has been in the C-suite of a couple others. And everyone qualified to regulate them is an alumna of their C-suites too. So the bad FCC chairman we have now, Ajit Pai, is a Verizon alum. But the good one we had before, Tom Wheeler, was a Comcast alum. Yeah, I remember when Tom Wheeler was was brought in, everybody's like, oh, he's going to be terrible because Comcast. And then he turned out to not suck. Well, yeah, but I mean, should we, should, is that is that our is that our standard, <laughs> right? That we just cross our fingers and hope we get an honest broker instead of someone who's neutral, who actually like is not beholden to any of the companies, is not the executor of the estates of any of their executives or godparents to any of the executive parents. I mean, that's what it means to be in these very concentrated sectors: is that you are interwoven very tightly. I mean, it's a really interesting thing that you mentioned. It sounds like it's a closed ecosystem, essentially. The regulators are the regulated, are the regulators back and forth till the end of time. And, you know, how did we end up in this place in the first place? Well, there's a couple of things that happen. So one is that telecoms enjoy some natural monopolies, right? The Once you've run the wires, it makes mm -hmm. sense for no one else to have them. But, you know, the other thing that happened is that AT&T which, you know, was the Bell system, was never very kind to the other entities in the ecosystem. Uh, AT&T wanted to wire up the plum networks and not the uh, rural ones that wouldn't be very profitable. They enjoyed getting giant subsidies in the forms of rights of way. Like, if you think about what it would cost you if you were like John Galt doing your network without any government subsidy to knock on every door in New York and say, hey, what are you going to charge me to run a wire through your basement? You know, the clearing cost of that exceeds the entire possible revenue of your network from now until the heat death of the universe. And so AT&T was happy to soak up these government subsidies, but like the rural telephone co-ops that grew out of the rural electrification co-ops from the WPA, from the New Deal, AT&T would just mercilessly crush them. They would crush the little mom and pop operators. Mm. They wouldn't interconnect with them. And so the FTC 
over many years and the DOJ and then later the FCC, they put lots of conditions on AT&T and waggled their finger at them and said, you know, you better behave yourself. And AT&T sort of roundly ignored them. And by 1956, this was so absolutely egregious that the DOJ was ready to break them up. But the Pentagon came to their rescue and they said, we cannot prosecute the war in Korea without AT&T because they become a de facto arm of the state. Now, yeah. they failed to prosecute the war in Korea anyway, right? <laughs> but AT&T wasn't broken up until 1982, and it was virtually the last thing that we did in terms of muscular antitrust enforcement. And it only came in because Reagan's antitrust czar didn't want to break up IBM, and he had these two breakups on his hands. IBM, for 12 years, had spent more fighting the DOJ action against it just on lawyers, then the entire DOJ antitrust division was spending on lawyers for all of its actions for 12 consecutive years. So he was like, how do I get out of this morass? I know. I'll break up AT&T and I will stick to my doctrine that we shouldn't break up companies by saying AT&T is not really a company. You know, they're, they're, they've been interfered with by the state so much that it's not really a market entity, so we have to break them up. And then I'll create this competitor for IBM and I'll say we don't have to break up IBM either. So it, it was it was basically regulators being asleep at the switch over a long period. And there's a lesson here for people worried about big tech because I hate big tech with the heat of a thousand suns, but every time people are like, oh, I know what we can do to make big tech better, we'll just force them to behave themselves. We'll create like conduct remedies that are so expensive that you have to be a monopolist to do them. Like go hire 10 million moderators to make sure no one's being naughty on Facebook, as opposed to like break up Facebook or introduce compatibility mandates so that people who don't like Facebook's moderation policies can leave Facebook without leaving behind their friends. And when you do that, you just make Facebook an arm of the state the way that AT&T was an arm of the state. And it just makes it harder. It's going to give them 30 more years of monopolization. Oh my God. I never even thought about like, what Facebook could become. That is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, don't make them, don't give them stakeholders in the in the most uh, upper echelons of the power structure because then they will intervene to stop them from having their power weakened. Right. Oh my God, that's like terrifying. I love to be scared. It makes, it. <laughs> it's a hot day here in New York. So this right. is a nice little chill for me. Thanks. I am a dystopian science fiction writer. <laughs> dystopian can it get? Because it's pretty dystopian now. Can it get more dystopian, specifically with relation to the ISPs? Yeah. So, you know, America today lags the OECD for uh, cost and for efficiency of its network. And, you know, Wait, the, the, thing, the, o, the OECD... The, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the rich countries. Okay. Of all the rich countries in the world, America is number one in bad telecoms. <laughs> USA! <laughs> yes, USA! I'm so yeah. proud of us. Good job, guys. Yeah, yeah, you know, number one. Uh, and so America's poor network conditions have become especially salient now that we're delivering education, employment, primary health care, mental health services, civic and political engagement, even access to things like nutrition or community. Those are all being delivered by that, that one wire. I mean, it's the wire that gives you both free speech and free assembly and, and all the rest of it. Right. And to the extent that the, the carriers are concentrated and not doing their job, first of all, having a bad wire means that all of those things are bad. 
But it can be worse because the wire can be adverse to you, right? It can, it can be not just that it's neglected or underinvested in. They can preferentially steer you towards the services that are good for their shareholders rather than the services that are good for you. And this is a universal impact of all lock-in, right? And this is why we see app stores under so much investigation. As we're speaking today, Epic has kicked over a couple of anthills oh, over I'm, Fortnite. I'm very aware. It's been fantastic. Yeah, right. I've heard a few things about that. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the last thing we want is for is for firms to be able to, like, conjure up a new tort called felony contempt of business model. And when these firms can engineer the law because they are the only game in town, right, when they're an essential service, if they can go to lawmakers and say, well, you must allow us to block this, spy on that, monetize this other in order to have a level playing field. Like, you know, one of the great opponents to privacy legislation has been the carriers because the carriers say, well, we have a gap. Google gets to spy on you and monetize its surveillance of you. How will we compete with Google unless we can spy on you too? You know, <laughs> thanks guys. You've really, <laughs> like, that's, that is not what we hope for in intersectoral competition, right? We hope that one of them is like, these guys are bad guys who are working against the interests of the citizenry we will weigh in on behalf of the citizenry as their competing sector to say, no, you must liberate them. They're like, no, 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 we want a peace too, you know? And and the government says, sure. They say, yeah, that makes way more sense than saying no to everybody. Well, what are you going to do when these, these carriers are your only access to the world? And now I want to come back to Frontier because it wasn't just the one million households that they booked as their asset because they they had no choice. Much more salient, I think, is the 4 million households whom they determined they could make 800 million additional dollars in profit off of over 10 years by installing fiber to them profitably, but whom they chose to leave on antique 20th century copper DSL infrastructure, not because it wouldn't be profitable, but because the primary analysts that move the share prices of the telecom sector don't like investments that amortize over more than five years, and the C-suite's compensation was primarily shares-based. And so the stock would go down if they made the company an extra $800 million over 10 years and gave the most underserviced 4 million households in America access to 100 gigabit fiber. And so they deliberately chose not to install profitable fiber to 800 million or to, to 4 million households. And it was all that, because they were going to make the money in 10 years instead of five. Right. And the analysts are giving advice to investors who are not buy and hold investors. They're, they're short-term investors who need early liquidity. And they said, well, we don't like CapEx that amortizes over more than five years. And because the C-suite gets all of its money in shares, and you know the wheeze about giving your your executive money in shares is it gives them skin in the game, right? right? Like they will only act in ways that make the company more profitable. That's not true. They will only act in ways that make the share price go up. So you're saying there's a bunch of perverse incentives that yeah. basically it's have set everything up to suck for us, the people that actually pay for these services. And of course, you know, to get back to this theme about competition monopoly, it's not just telecoms, because why do they care so much about what institutional investors do? Because the institutional investors have come to dominate the market as well, right? The, the, you know, it's, it's like there's, there's half a dozen people making decisions at half a dozen funds, some of them companies that, like, that you might have your 401k in that make spread bets that are indexed to the, to the market, and some of them being private equity funds who take really big positions. But this small number of people 
have an enormous amount of influence, and their parochial needs for liquidity over five-year timescales means that 4 million households in rural America are now trying to teach their kids over DSL. Mm. Or worse. Or yeah. worse, yeah. I mean, what is it about that five-year time frame? Is it just a, another sort of arbitrary deadline to, to count the money again? Or yeah. know, is there anything yeah. special? It's like you just want to know that, you know, so like say the company goes under, you want to make sure that its its capital can be liquidated and, and dispersed to its shareholders. And, you you know, like that, you know, your hedge against the company going under is greater when the company is not making capital bets that they don't start earning on for more than five years. You know, so like they had to put a billion dollars in and they would get $1.8 billion out over a decade. That was their own math, right? And they they just were like, we don't want the $800 million dollars. What I want is the extra $1 million that I get in my pay packet at the end of the year for foregoing the $800 million and the service to our customers. I mean, I guess that basically puts a price on price on people, essentially. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's your value to so is the, ISPs. Is the answer to just get rid of the stock market? I mean, that's often my answer. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, all we have to do. So just dismantle no one can it. really hope for any any relief in this until uh, capitalism has been replaced by a more equitable system. And we just, no, that's not true. We have lots of interventions we can make. Here in California, we have a broadband bill that will fund the state to help the cities put fiber in. And that fiber will be municipally owned, but operated by competing entities. So you can get your, if you remember before GW Bush nerfed this with DSL, there was a time where your DSL infrastructure was provided by your monopoly carrier, AT&T or whoever, but AT&T had to lease space. Yeah, Southwestern Bell, that's right. Yeah, (laughs) But they had to lease space to a competing operator. So, you know, like I had a little group of of hardcore nerds. You know, I moved to San Francisco in 99 to work on a dot-com just like everybody else who's my age. And, and I had like hardcore nerds who ran an ISP for themselves, right? They were, they were network engineers who provided a network engineer's ISP and I could get them to provision my DSL. And, and Bush nuked that order, right? So, you know, California is like, okay, let's just do it again. Except this time with fiber, Let's have conduit. Let's have fiber in the conduit. We can upgrade the fiber later through the conduit. And then lots of people can compete to give you service based on their customer service levels and so on. Federally, one of the things that we could do that would be very important is the FCC or Congress could move to make it unambiguously lawful for cities to install their own fiber and to prohibit states from passing laws that ban cities from from installing fiber. So the telecoms industry, working primarily with ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Committee, who you will know from other elements of bad law that were promulgated through state houses around the country, they managed to get many states to enact laws that banned cities from providing fiber. Right. I think like Oklahoma is one. There's It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of the states North where, Carolina. that are the most affected right now by bad bad broadband. And right. then the state, they were like, oh, but you can't make your own. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's and and you know these are laws that are so broad that even if no one offers broadband in a town, so the argument is, oh well, the private sector can't compete with the state because the state has all kinds of resources at its at its hands. So you'll crowd out the private sector, but they won't allow you to pull fiber in your town even if no one from the private sector wants it. Right? You just sit there until the private sector is ready for you, and until then, you know, here's your tin can and here's your string. Good luck with it.
It seems very strange to me because, I mean, you, you mentioned Alec. I mean, they're, you know, notorious for working with conservative lawmakers. And there's often this idea that conservative, you know, lawmakers really love big business or they love business and competition. And, you know, like it's very, that it's pro-business mindset. And yet it sounds like it's a very pro five businesses and no one else gets in kind of mindset from the way that we've approached internet so far. Yeah, I think there's a kind of misconception that liking business is the same as liking competition. Hmm. I think those have been thoroughly uncoupled for quite some time. You know, Warren Buffett is pretty cheerful in what he describes as uh, an ideal firm. You know, this idea that Buffett has of moats around businesses, Hmm. that's just businesses you can't compete with. You know, when he described why he got into VeriSign, for example, he said, uh, you know, I don't know anything about domain registration, but I recognize a government monopoly when I see one. And the government has given, through ICANN, VeriSign a monopoly over two important assets, .org and .net. And that means that they don't have to worry about pricing. They can set prices, right? A lot of people think the definition of a monopoly is when there's only one seller. The kind of policy definition of monopoly is when you set prices. Right. So, like, that's why Apple and Google are are monopolies with their app store. Right. Right, because they get to set the price and they get to decide who's in and who's out and so on. Yeah, so, you know, um, Peter Thiel, you know, he he wrote an article, competition is for suckers. You know, firms strongly disprefer competition except when they are trying to break in, right? I mean, I I think this is a universal factor. I mean, when we talk about uh, pro-competitive measures like interoperability, right? Apple was like completely gung-ho for its right, and rightly so, gung-ho for its right to reverse engineer Microsoft Office and produce the iWork suite that not only added a bunch of cool new features, but also could read and write Office files and no longer subject Mac users to Microsoft's deliberate slowdown of compatibility with the Mac version of Office. And, you know, good for Apple, but then when it came time for people to say, well, I would like to reverse engineer the file formats in iTunes, Apple was like, well, no, that violates the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Or, you know... Google is publishing editorials on their website right now about the beauty of interoperability when it comes to APIs, because Oracle is quite wrongly suing them to establish copyright over APIs. But Google is no fan of interoperability if you're an Android handset maker that wants to leave the G Suite out. (laughs) No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, these companies all really like to be very selective on, on what monopolies and stuff they'll protest and fight. And it's only ever for their benefit, which I think we're seeing even now with Epic Games. Like, Epic Games is doing this, but it's not necessarily just to make it a more open marketplace. It's so that they can get their own marketplace sure, that already sure. undercuts the competition. Well, you look at Spotify, you know, they were the first ones to do what Epic is doing, where they, they sued Apple over the payment lock-in on the right. App Store. In, and... You know, Spotify is also creating walled gardens, right? They're like, they took in all this investment capital, they're buying up podcasts, they're sticking them behind paywalls, they're doing all this stuff that they themselves objected to. And, you know, this is not unusual in industry. It's why we like to have a referee who isn't in the tank for one of the teams. Like we have with the FCC now. Yeah, which we would hope that they would be neutral brokers, not just within the sector, but intersectorally. So not just regulating telecoms, but regulating telecoms to make sure that telecoms isn't nerfing IT or tech or whatever, and vice versa. Back in the copyright wars, you know, in the Napster days, when there was all of this fight to like make firms liable for what their users posted, basically the CDA 230 fight, you know, version 0.96 beta back in the old days of Napster, (laughs) You know, the entertainment companies that we would be adverse to 
would say things like, well, you know, how can you accuse us of censorship? All of our key litigation has been about free speech. And it was true, you know, the record industry fighting Tipper Gore and the Parental Music Resource Committee and so on. And what my boss, the woman who now runs EFF, Cindy Cohen used to say is like, guys, we know you love the First Amendment. We just wish you'd share, (laughs) you know, and uh, like firms love competition. They just don't want to share it. They just want it. They want one role for them and another role for someone else. Fair enough. That's what they're supposed to do. But let's have some referees who do believe in competition. So, you know, thinking about that, then, you know, what's the solution referee wise? I mean, you know, is there a neutral arbiter that you're thinking of that'd be like, oh, yeah, like put that person or put that institution in where the FCC is and let's get to work. No, I think that the issue about the the regulators being suborned to industry is really a competition question because, as I said before, when the firms converge, they arrive at a common lobbying position. All of the people qualified to evaluate whether that lobbying position is a good one are drawn from the firms, so the referees end up being alumna of the firms. And they have these monopoly rents that they extract that they can spend. So, you know, the net neutrality fight with Ajit Pai at the start of the Trump administration, there was an enormous amount of blood and treasure spilled buying bots that, you know, scraped email addresses and sent fake emails in support of dismantling net neutrality and so on. You know, all of that dry powder, all that excess revenue that they had available in their arsenal is also part of the competition question. And so what we have is an iterative problem where we need to make the sector more competitive, which will make its regulation more honest, which will let us make the sector more competitive, which will let us make the industry more honest, right? And and it has to go around and around. You know, as I say, this California bill would do a lot, right? Just creating competitive pressure does a lot. Most places, you don't have any consumer power, but you do have lawmakers who are increasingly alive to these questions. You know, in, in Burbank, where I live, everyone who's knocked on my door asking me about my city hall vote I've said, well, what are you doing about the fiber? And I've seen their eyes start to glitter as they're like, wait a second, this is a total pocketbook issue, right? With one little vote, with one little act in in committee, I could be the person who brought Burbank 100 gigabit fiber while other kids were stuck at home and while they were stuck at home trying to work, right? So that's the political force that you have available to you. Some places you do have a market choice to make. So in San Francisco, for example, there's an ISP called Monkey Brains, that's uh, run by- Incredible name. Yeah, it's so good. Rudy Rucker Jr., who owns it, his father is one of the great titans of cyberpunk, Rudy Rucker Sr. Yeah. And I fictionalized Monkey Brains in my little brother books that the ISP called Pig Spleen is a version of Monkey Brains. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I like Pig Spleen, actually. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Monkey Brains is good. Pig Spleen is like next level. <laughs> Even better. And Monkey Brains has a microwave relays on the top of Sutro Tower, and they will give you gigabit wireless internet from, uh, you know, this antenna that they have that overlooks the city. So where you have that, you can do something with it. But really, this is a a question of reinvigorated competition law, which will also reinvigorate telecoms law. And the good news is that there are a lot of sectors that would benefit from an increase in competition law. You know, the, the web need not be five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four, right? And we and need ads. not have... And ads, yeah, we need not have only, (laughs) right, and we need not have only four big banks, right? And we need not have just one wrestling league, right? There used to be 30 (laughs) and now there's one. And we've seen how the winners in the wrestling league game use their perch 
to fight media companies who are unflattering to them. Hi, Gizmodo. <laughs> right? <Aww>. Hi. <laughs> so, you know, there are a lot of pro wrestling fans who may not care about the internet. But they do care about the fact that all the wrestlers that they love have been reclassified as contractors by the monopolist. And they're now begging on GoFundMe for money to help them die with dignity in their 50s from the injuries they sustained over their careers. Those people are natural allies, right? That, you know, that we have the eyewear market is now completely controlled by one private equity fund based uh, who that bought a company based in Italy called Luxottica. They bought every major retailer. So they own LensCrafter, Sunglass Hut, Target Optical, Sears Optical, and so on. They refused to carry eyewear brands unless the company would sell to them. So now they own Coach, Dolce & Gabbana, Oliver Peoples, Versace. They own Oakley and every other major eyewear brand, as well as Essilor, the largest lab. So even if you buy hipster internet glasses, your lenses come from them. And they own the largest insurer, iMed. And so even if you if you get artisanally ground lenses from a man in a leather apron in Portland, <laughs> the insurer is still them. They've got, they dip their beak. The cost of glasses has gone up a thousand percent over 10 years. Right? So there are a lot of constituents who should care about competition and monopoly, and they may all think that they're working on different issues. They may think that they're pissed off about wrestling or telecoms or eyewear. In the same way that before the term ecology was founded, there were people who cared about owls or the, the ozone layer, but they didn't. And they thought, oh, well, you know, I'm all, all in favor of your ozone layer fight, but I care about owls. The term ecology turned those issues into a movement. And we're on the verge of there being a movement about competition because these concentrated markets, they're bad for all of us. So do you yeah, have I, a term for it? I call it pluralism. Okay. Yeah, that's why I have a new website where that I write on every day called pluralistic.net. <laughs> Good plug. Ironically, I write on it alone. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone wants to join you, can they come over and like, uh, you know, chip in a, chip in a site, chip in an article? Uh, maybe. So, so, send me a pitch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Normally I write about the earth dying, but maybe there's something in this for me too. I'm sure there's an angle. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, definitely if you want to talk about like, so one of the things that we didn't talk about here that where it intersects with climate is that the job of a regulator isn't just to be a referee. It's to be a neutral adjudicator of the truth, right? Because firms have competing truth claims. Sometimes they're motivated by good faith disagreements. Sometimes they're parochial, but you want a neutral entity in the middle who says, yes, masks are, are, are good for preventing coronavirus, or no, opioids aren't safer than we used to think they are. You shouldn't be taking them on the reg. Or, you know, yes, climate change is being caused by fossil fuels. And as our markets concentrate, truth-seeking ceases to be a neutral adjudication and becomes an auction. And that's obviously the case with climate questions. It's also obviously the case with health questions. You know, ask yourself, how do the Sacklers get richer than the Rockefellers telling risible lies about the safety of opioids and kicking off an epidemic that killed 200,000 Americans? Well, it's because the truth was up for sale. And so, yeah, if we're going to fight climate change, we need to agree that climate change is real and we need to agree on what we can do about it. And maybe we'll make mistakes about what we can do about it because the science will evolve. But let us have those mistakes be good faith mistakes that are corrected by new evidence and not mistakes that were created because we sold the truth to the highest bidder. So, I mean, I think this raises the question that like, you know, we like to, to present here to folks in general is like, what is the one thing a listener can do? And I mean, we want to, you know, let's go back to where we started with this, with the internet and the fact that this is the thing that has become more of a lifeblood to our society than we probably even could have imagined even six months ago. I mean, if someone is freaked out by hearing about this 
concentration of power and wealth in these, you know, five ISPs or whatever it is, um, and if they're pissed off about their glasses for that matter, I mean, what's the one thing someone can do to get involved with this and try to make a difference? It's a really good question. And, and I think the answer that people look for when they say that is like, well, if you just recycled your batteries and didn't put them in the garbage, but actually took them to the dump, then we would start to make a difference, right? The reality is that the one that, like, you can, you can be the world's most recycling person. You can reduce your footprint to zero, and it still isn't going to stop your kids from having to dig through rubble looking for canned goods while drinking their own urine, right? The actual answer to what you can do about climate change or these other systemic problems, like the problem with cable and internet and, and monopolies and telecoms, is join a movement. Right? That's the most important thing an individual can do is to be part of a movement. And there are a lot of organizations. I happen to work for one of them uh, as a contractor. I, I work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's been nearly 20 years that I've been doing that. They're very good. They spend your money wisely. They also give you lots of things that you can do. We have local affiliates, the Electronic Frontiers Alliance, that create local actions that are related to local activities. You know, the, our, our Oakland chapter was instrumental in getting facial recognition banned in Oakland. Other chapters used their playbook and got them banned in towns in Massachusetts. So, you know, that's great. You can, you can join EFF, but they're not the only ones. There are a lot of movements. And within the two major political parties, there are groups that are very interested in trust busting for different reasons. And I agree with some more than others, but it doesn't matter, right? If you care about trust busting, if you care about competition, there are pro-competition groups within the two major political parties. And there are also competition opportunities at your local level. Your, your town council is in a position where they can make their procurements contingent on competitive activity, right? They can say, well, the city won't buy from any vendor that binds its employees to binding arbitration or its customers to buying or binding arbitration or non-competes. So that there is competition in the labor market because one of the areas where we've lost competition is in the labor market. The largest source of non-compete agreements is fast food restaurants. You become managers at a Wendy and you, and you can never work at a McDonald's. So procurement has an enormous look in here. And, and you know the state net neutrality laws that were passed after Ajit Pai killed it federally that was their maiden lever, right? They just said, if you're an ISP and you're not neutral, this no state entity can buy internet from you. And that's super powerful. So start small. Start, well, start with an org. Okay. Find an organization that is doing this work and ask them how you can help and shop for organizations that can match with your skills. There's four ways we intervene in the world. Code, law, norms, and markets. We have conversations with people that change their minds. That's norms. We pass laws that change what you're allowed to do. That's that's laws. We have new technologies that change what you can do. That's code. And we have new businesses that change what's profitable. And that's markets. Everyone listening has at least one of those things that they can do to intervene, right? Everyone can at least be normative. Everyone can at least go out and talk to their neighbors and say, look, has it ever occurred to you that there's a connection between the one ISP we have access to and the one search engine we all use and the one company that makes our eyewear and the one company that supplies all the textbooks for our kids in school. I love it. I mean, I don't love the monopolies. Those are terrible. But I love the idea that like, even now you can just, as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, you can go out, see your neighbor, hopefully with your mask on, 
and mm-hmm. start to help. Start to <laughs> from change. From six this. feet away, start from six shouting feet at away. them. <laughs> Shout across, hey, I got a thing to talk to you about. It'll be great. It, it certainly would be. And, you know, you will have local candidates in your election who will take positions on this. You can push them towards it. Um, you can push them towards it congressionally. You can push them towards it at the state and local level. This is an issue that touches so many areas of our lives. And uh, if if you can educate them on that, they can get behind it. I mean, you know, one of the things about monopolies is that they never, ever front for themselves. They always front for someone else, right? The cable monopolists say, oh, uh, we're fronting for disadvantaged groups that we're giving preferential internet access to, never mind that they never really are, right? Because nobody nobody is out there saying, will no one think of the cable monopolists, right? They, 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 <laughs> right. It's always like, well, won't you think of the guys climbing the poles? Won't you think of the people who use the internet? That's That's what we're here for. And if you can separate those two, if you can say, I I want the internet, I just don't want it run by some douchebag making tens of millions of dollars a year to provide the worst quality service that he possibly can get away with, then you can start to drive a wedge. Hell yes. I think this is really helpful. I I do feel somewhat more hopeful knowing that there are are multiple avenues to exact change. And I got to say, like, I did not think a conversation about the internet would get us to to wrestling and fast food, but but I'm glad to, I'm glad it didn't. I think it really is. It's eye opening, (laughs) frankly. It's all one thing, man. Whoa. You just rip on my leaf I love it. Well, thank you, Corey, so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I know you've had a very busy day, but really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening to System Reboot. It's hosted by me, Alex Kranz, and Brian Kahn. Our producer is Michaela Heck, and Jamie Colazzo mixed the episode. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it. It'll help spread the word and allow others to find our show. Yeah, and if you have any other feedback, questions, or thoughts about what you heard today, you can tweet me at Alex H. Kranz, or... You can tweet me at BL Kahn. See you next week. <laughs>